Man, we are changing stuff up tonight. I'm wearing a headset. Very exciting. Use my hands. How fun. Okay. Salt Company, what a joy it is. Guys, who's pumped for Salt Company tonight? Come on. Yeah. What a good night. Hey, Thursdays are the best. Okay, uh, if I haven't met you guys yet, my name is Tony. I'm on staff here with the Salt Company, and I am pumped for tonight because we are teaching on the resurrection of Jesus. Come on. Amen. He is risen. Okay. Very, very exciting stuff. Uh, I just want to say, if you're new here to Salt Company, I say this every single week. Shout out to my girl, Kayla. I met you. You're new. Very exciting. Uh, Thanks for being a part of Salt Company. We know that it can be scary to step into an environment like this where people raise their hands and worship, and and we just want to say thank you so much for being here. Tonight, we're going to finish out our Through the Eyes series, okay? So we started it all the way back at kickoff, great night, as we looked at Jesus through the eyes of a woman who touched him, and then everything changed for her life. And the week two was about Levi being called away from the tax booth, the thing that gave him status, significance, and security, and Jesus called him into a better life. Last week, we looked at Jesus through the eyes of those who killed him, and tonight, we will look at Jesus through the eyes who saw him rise from the dead. So we're excited for that. If you've got a Bible, we'd love for you to open up to Mark chapter 16. If you don't have one, we'd love to give you one. You can use your phone. That's not a big deal. Mark chapter 16 is where we'll be camping out tonight. Let me pray as we enter into our time together. Father, thanks for the opportunity to open your word tonight. May tonight not be about Salt Company, may not be about any of us here, but would it be about you? Father, we want your name to be lifted high, your good news to be preached, your Bible to be taught, and we believe that, Father, the way that you transform people is not by my words or any of our words, but by your word alone. So we believe that Jesus, tonight, you will move through Mark chapter 16, that you will reveal our eyes to the beauty of the resurrection, the grandeur of your glory, and that tonight, Jesus, all of us would leave this place with a smile on our face that hurts so much because we cannot stop smiling because the resurrection is true, that we have hope beyond this life, and that, Father, I pray that tonight, all of us would leave this place more like you. Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so my life is a series of awkward conversations, okay? One of the ones I thought of was, I don't know if you guys have been here, but when you go on a flight and they check your ticket and they're like, have a great flight, and you're like, you too, okay. I don't know if you've been there, rough. Another one I thought of was going to the drive-thru and you like barely say your order and you think they're going to know, and then they tell you a different order and then you don't have the social courage to correct them. You're like, yeah, I'll take it. That sounds great, you know, similar to what I was expecting. Or, or when you meet someone and you're doing meet and greet time, very anxiety-inducing for me. I don't know if it is for you. And you run out of stuff to say for like 30 seconds. So you start commenting on their outfit. You're like, dang, that shirt seems super soft. You're like, I don't, that's a really soft-looking shirt. And they're like, what do I say to that? Do you want to touch it? It's just an awkward, awkward conversation, okay? Uh, some of you guys are like, wow, I've really been there. That like hurts. Okay. Um, I've had a lot of awkward conversations. I remember this one moment where I was actually having an awkward conversation with my friend Alex. Now, Alex doesn't know Jesus. He didn't grow up through the church. He was actually born in China and came here to the United States to study, and he was a PhD student studying math. So he was like super smart, like think like really, really smart. And then he asked me if we could sit down and have an intellectual conversation about Jesus. And not only was he there, but his other PhD friend was there, and I was like, dude, this is going to be rough for me. Like, I was like, senior year, I was just like sliding. Ooh, okay, don't even know. Homework assignments didn't do them. 
barely went to class. And so I was like sitting there with these two guys, and they opened up the conversation with, hey, Tony, just so you know, we respect you, but we do not believe that Jesus is real, and we believe that religion is man-made, and frankly, our naturalistic worldviews don't have any room for the supernatural of Christ. And I was like, what an awkward conversation, okay. It's like, your shirt seems soft, like, let's make some, some friendship. Um, and then I actually shot back with, hey, that's great and all, as long as we're being honest, my goal is that I would share the gospel with you, that you would see that Jesus is beautiful and you would give your life to him because he's given his life to you. So that was also an awkward silence, like three longest seconds of my life. And so we started talking about Jesus and we began to talk about kind of the anthropological reason why I believed in God. That I believe that all human beings are made to worship, that our souls are supposed to be indexed towards Christ. And so all of us are waiting for this moment of being fully satisfied in him. And they're like, okay, interesting. And then we started talking about the sociological reasons for why I believed in Jesus. That the reason why there's ethnic equality or becoming more equality in our society today is not because of woke Twitter, but because Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago broke through racial barriers and the early church was the first multi-ethnic organization to ever exist. So I began having conversations with them about the societal side. And then, you know when a conversation, you just like feel the energy drop? You know, I was like, oh shoot, what did I say? And that's began when they asked me about the supernatural of the Christian faith. Like, hey, that's, that's great, man. We like that you, you kind of understand the human mind, and we like that society has been transformed by Jesus. But what about, like, what about, like the, the, the born of a virgin stuff? What about, like, the supernatural healing stuff? And most importantly, what about the resurrection? And they asked me this question, which I thought was great. They were like, what if the resurrection didn't actually happen? What if Jesus never rose from the grave? And I looked them in the eyes, and I said, if Jesus Christ did not rise from the grave, then Christianity is a scam then salt company does not exist, then I've wasted my life basing my life on something that never happened. Salt company, the question I have for you tonight is what if the resurrection didn't actually happen? What are we doing here tonight? And the second question I have for you is what if the resurrection actually did? All right, open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 16 as we get started tonight. Tonight we will see that the tomb either destroys or defines everything. And we'll look at the historical evidence for the resurrection. I'm going to get real nerdy for about seven minutes. Trust me, it'll be worth it. Email me if you have any questions. Um, that's not actually a joke. You can actually email me, tony.lee at saltcitychurch.com. Okay. And so we're going to look at the resurrection account. Ask the question, is there power in an empty tomb? Look with me to part one of my sermon tonight, that a full tomb destroys everything. Mark chapter 16, verse 1 is where we'll begin tonight. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salomon brought spices so they might go and anoint him. And very clearly on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Okay, so I want to give you guys some context, right? What we talked about last week was Mark chapter 15, the crucifixion of Jesus. That happened on Friday, what we call in the church tradition Good Friday. And then between Friday and Sunday, the resurrection of Jesus, there was this day in between, and that day is Saturday. And here's the point I want to make to you right now. If Jesus Christ did not raise, if the tomb was not empty, then every day is Saturday. For the last 2,000 years and for all of human history forward, every day is Saturday. Saturday was a day of grief, of mourning, of weeping, that Jesus Christ had died, which means all of their hopes and their ambitions and their dreams were gone, that Jesus, there was no more hope outside of this life. If, Saturday, if Jesus did not rise, then there would be no churches to go to, only cemeteries. That life would be life without, without hope and only 
suffering. As Paul eloquently writes in 1 Corinthians 15, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Salt Company, if Jesus is not raised from the dead, then all this life is, is you existing your way through life only to die by some type of physical alienment or accident with no hope for the future. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, if the tomb is not empty, then Saturday is every day. But more than that, if the tomb is not empty, then Jesus is a liar. See, Jesus Christ would prophesy that the temple would be broken down and resurrected in three days. What he didn't mean was a temple of worship. What he meant was himself. If Jesus Christ did not raise from the dead, then everything he said and everything he did was disqualified. There is no salt company if Jesus did not raise from the dead. There is no church if Jesus did not raise from the dead. In other words, if the tomb is not empty, it destroys everything. The meaning of life and suffering, the purpose of the disciples' lives, and therefore ours, the vision we have of Jesus and what he said he came to do. If if the tomb is not empty, it destroys everything. But Salcombe, here's the good news that I have for you tonight that we're going to see in these next couple verses. If the tomb is empty, then it defines everything. Look with me to verse 4. In a moment, I'm going to read out some of the greatest sentences ever written in human history. And when we get to the part where the angel tells Mary, I'm smiling because it's good news, okay? He has risen. He is not here. We're going to go crazy, okay? I'm talking like, wow, crazy. Oh my gosh, amazing touchdown, clutch moment, that type of crazy, okay? When, he, when we say, he is risen, he is not here, we're going to go, woo! Okay, let's practice. He is risen. He is not here. It's the good news of the gospel. Let's read verse 4. And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Good news. Okay. See the place where he left him, but go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. And he went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Salt Company, here is the good news message of Christianity. If we stop at Mark 15 last week, that is not good news. That God himself would die on a cross at the hands of his creation is not good news. But here is good news, that he has risen. Amen? He is not dead. He has defeated death. See, if Jesus rose from the tomb, then here is what's true. The church of Christ, the kingdom of God on earth is burst. If the tomb is empty, then death is defeated. Then the story of the world according to Mark is true, that Jesus really is the son of God. Here's what that means for us. His death means that we don't have to die. Does that make sense? His resurrection means our resurrection. If the tomb is empty, then everything that Jesus said, did, and came for is true which means it gives us unbelievable hope in this life and the life to come. It gives you unbelievable purpose as a follower of Jesus. Without the resurrection on Sunday, you live a Saturday type of life, a life where suffering is the end of the story, a life where there is no purpose to your body or your soul. But if if Sunday came, if Jesus actually rose from the dead, you have the greatest calling in the entire world to tell people about your risen king. This is the good news of the gospel. You are given unbelievable purpose. Salt Company, the resurrection of Jesus Christ gives us unshakable, resilient, radical, and unrelentless hope. It is a definitive moment of human history and the definitive moment of your life. But not just that, but it defines our present. Salt Company, here's what I want you to understand. 
if Jesus rose from the dead and everything he said is true, that he wasn't just some type of historical figure, some type of good teacher or a good leader, if Jesus rose from the dead and everything he said is true, there is no half in, half out Christianity. That you must bow at the feet of King Jesus because he has death wrapped around his hand. He's not asking you to follow him. He's saying, look at me. I am God. I've risen from the dead. You must follow King Jesus. And if the tomb is empty, it defines our futures. So here's the good news of the Christian faith. It's not just that you have a life after this one. It's more than that, but it's not less than that. Your future life is not a hypothetical spiritual resurrection like the Greeks believed. It is not a resurrection reserved for the most Jewish or most religious like the Jews believed. The future resurrection that you have is a bodily resurrection in the new Jerusalem, heaven on earth. So So many of you guys have grown up kind of around Christianity, and you've heard that heaven is this like ethereal place that you like float up to after you die. But in actuality, Jesus' great redemptive plan was to bring heaven to earth to start a new Jerusalem, a place much like Eden, a place where your body will resurrect without any of the ailments that you currently have. Your mind will be fully healthy. You'll be in the perfect presence of God. You'll never be insecure and never sin again. This is the heaven that we are being called to. It is not just a hypothetical future, but a real one. And we get to experience that right now. In this place, in the presence of God, as you walk around with the spirit of God in you, you are like a little bit of heaven walking all around your campuses, not fully, but we can taste it. This is what Tim Keller says about the already but not yet theological principle of the new Jerusalem. In the resurrection, we have the presence of the future. What a line, by the way. I was like, what does that even mean? <laughs> Very exciting. The power by which God will finally destroy all suffering, evil, deformity, and death at the end time has broken into history now and is available, partially but substantially now. When we unite with the risen Christ by faith, that future power that is potent enough to remake the universe comes into us. So company, only the resurrection promises, not just new minds and new hearts, but also new bodies. And we get a taste of heaven now, a presence of the future. And here's some of the implications of that. Because our future is unshakable. See, if you're a Christian here and you believe in Jesus, your future is sealed. There's no question what God has done for you and what he will continue to do for you for the rest of your life. And because your future is sealed, it affects the way you live right now. Christianity is not a golden ticket into salvation. It's not a get-out-of-jail-free card. It's an invitation into the greatest life, a life where you can live radically, a life where you can live passionately. Because the good news of the Christian life is this, that this life doesn't have to be everything you want it to be, but it can be far more than you ever expected it to be. See, the invitation of Jesus is take risks and live a radical life for the kingdom of God. See, some of you guys, this is what you need to hear tonight. Some of you guys have this, like, internal Christian faith. Like, I'm a Christian when I come to Saul Company at 8 p.m. on Thursdays, but the other, I don't know, 164 hours of my week, I'm afraid. I'm afraid of the culture at large. I'm afraid of the antagonistic arguments that I deal with. I'm afraid of my friends who don't know Jesus and will think I'm a creep if I tell them about my risen Lord. But here's what the resurrection teaches you. The worst thing they can do to you is deny you, but Jesus didn't. Does that make sense? You can share the good news of the gospel with the people in your life that are furthest from God because Jesus invites you into a perfect relationship with him. You know where you're going. You know what your future is, which gives you the ability to fight radically now, and it gives you the ability to have joy in suffering. 
ultimately the good news for the Christian life is not just deal with suffering. It's not just get through your life. It's not just get through your depression, get through your physical ailments, get through your back injury, get through your disease. The good news of the Christian life is have joy in your suffering because you know that one day when you enter into New Jerusalem, that disease will be gone. The mental illness will be gone. Your body will finally be able to dance. Some of you here have so many physical ailments. Some of you guys, I mean, Rachel has a back that like doesn't work. One day she'll never have to worry about picking up a box. Do you hear me? That future exists, even if it's not in this life. But one day she will be able to go to the new Jerusalem and will be able to have a body that does not quit on her. And the good news that some of us need to hear tonight is some of you guys have struggled with mental illness your whole life and you frankly don't know what life would be like without it. You don't know what life would be like to not wake up and feel depressed at the first thing, first thought you have. You don't know like what life would be like to not be anxious about tomorrow. Saul coming, here's my good news for you. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, you can have joy in your suffering now because you know that you have a future life where everything will be made right. The resurrection is true and it transforms your life. Because of the resurrection, we can live radical lives in the now and have joy in the suffering. Okay, so I was thinking about kind of how the resurrection has, like, impacted my life. And uh, I don't know about you guys, but I have questions in my life I just don't have answers for. And I was thinking about that, and I was like, okay, I'm a Christian. I'm a pastor. Why is my mind so broken? Why is it that no matter what I do or how much therapy I go to or whatever is prescribed for me, it just, I just can't seem to fight or get rid of the depression in my mind? Will I ever be healthy again? Or questions like, my parents both grew up in a starvation country where they literally didn't have enough food to eat as kids. My mom's worked two jobs her entire life and asking the questions like, God, why, why is there so much suffering in the world? Like, I still don't get it. No matter how many theological loops you put me through, I still do not understand why there are billions of people that starve every year. Or why is it that my grandfather at 36 years old died without ever hearing the good name of Jesus? There was no overseas missionary to tell him that Jesus Christ loved him. That he could have the hope that I have now. So, so if I'm completely honest with you, I feel like I have pretty decent theology. But there are a lot of questions in my life that I simply cannot solve. But here's the promise that I have from King Jesus. Because of his resurrection, one day, I will enter into New Jerusalem. I will enter into heaven on earth. And the first thing that I'm going to do is gave Jesus a two-year-long hug. It's going to be so long. I'm just going to sit there forever. I'm like, we got time, Jesus. Don't worry. We ain't got no other place to be. We got no appointments. And he's going to tell me every answer to every question I've ever had. And I'm 100% sure of that. So I'll come in. I don't have to know your story to know that you have questions in your life that you don't know the answers to. But I do know the gospel story. And one day, if you know Jesus, he will whisper in your ear every answer to every question you've ever had. The resurrection offers us hope in this life. For the empty tomb to define everything, salt company, to redefine our presence and redefine our future, it must be true. So here's my last point for us tonight, that the resurrection is real. Okay, so normally the way I preach is I kind of move around, do the thing, ha-ha, you know, that stuff. But for the next seven minutes, which might feel like 70, we'll see, 
I'm going to give you an intellectual and historically verifiable philosophical argument that the resurrection is not a fictional event, but a historical event. Not a point of your imagination, but actually of reality. So let's begin. Buckle in, okay? Take out your notes, whatever. History lesson. Three different reasons why the resurrection was historical and not fiction. Okay, one, the tomb was empty. If you take notes, write it down. Two, the eyewitness accounts. And three, the life of the disciples. Okay, let's roll. Okay, let's begin with the tomb was empty. So that rock, that stone in front of the tomb weighed two to 4,000 pounds, which is a lot of weight, like holy cow. And here's what Matthew 27 tells us, that the Romans were afraid of grave robbing by the disciples, so they sealed the stone completely and put Roman guards up in front of the stone. And here's the current argument of the current philosophical age, okay? The question is not if the tomb was empty. The question is how the tomb became empty. And here's why that's the question. is because atheist historians agree with us that the tomb had to be empty because otherwise the Jews could easily go back and check the tomb. But it wasn't. In fact, the current prevailing atheist argument is that this, you know, 4,000-pound rock thing that was sealed and guarded by Roman soldiers was broken into, poof, by the disciples. They just pulled one quick on them, undid this freaking stone, and stole Jesus' body. That's like the current prevailing philosophy. But I think that's a little ridiculous considering the disciples were teenagers and dumb. Like they just, they just were. They weren't like military leaders, you know what I mean? They were like, oh my gosh, no, like I don't want to associate myself with Jesus. And then suddenly within three days, they like get a ton of faith that their savior dies. So they have to like go steal his body. It's frankly a plausible argument, but unlikely. And the reason why we know that is because it's not just the empty tomb. That could be a potential, but it wasn't just that the tomb was empty. It was that Jesus bodily rose and revealed himself to a bunch of different stinking people, okay? Second reason, the eyewitness accounts. Stay with me intellectually. You got this. The second reason why we believe in the resurrection is because of eyewitness testimony. This was the leading way to prove an event happened in the first century because it was the most reliable source of information because the people that were still alive that saw the event could be cross-examined. First Corinthians and the Gospel of Mark were both written within the first generation. So when people say to you, yeah, 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 but don't you know that the Gospels were written 500 years later? Just be like, no, they weren't. No, they weren't, okay? They were written within 30 to 40 years of Jesus' death, which means the people cited in this eyewitness testimony story would have still been alive, living in Jerusalem. So you could just be like, oh, I don't believe Jesus rose. Go talk to Mary. Did Jesus raise? Yes, he did. Okay, does that make sense? Eyewitness testimony. And not only were those few women in Mark chapter 16 the ones who saw Jesus, the gospel accounts share seven different locations, seven different moments, seven different groups of people, and seven different sizes of people that Jesus would show himself to. In fact, 1 Corinthians 15 says he showed himself to 500 stinking people, many of which were still alive. That's like a lot. That's like a lot of human beings that saw Jesus rise from the dead. Does that make sense? So if we look at the eyewitness testimony, if we do history in any reliable way, that we look at eyewitness testimony, written accounts, kind of stack them all together and cross-examine the evidence that we have, then you believing that like King Charles the 74th ruled in England in 1245 is the exact same logic you would have to use to rule the resurrection as true. Does that make sense? If you do history in any single way, you find out that what Mark was doing here was not imaginary, hypothetical, fictional event casting. It was a resurrection historical account. But more than that, and I think one of the most prevailing reasons why we believe this to be true, is that the first eyewitness testimonies of Jesus' resurrection were women. Now, this might not seem like a big deal in 2022, but back then in zero, or whatever it was, like one, I don't actually, I don't know how that works, but you know what I mean. It's just, you know, 
a while ago, 2,000 years, okay? Women were incredibly marginalized and were not able to testify in court. Which means the idea that Mark would create an illegitimate argument and put women at the base of his argument is frankly ridiculous. The only reason why Mark would do that was if it actually happened. In fact, to prove this, I want to show you a quote from Celsus, which I thought of Celsius, great drink, but it's not. Celsus. He was a Greek philosopher who lived in the second century and was highly antagonistic towards the Christian faith. And here's what he said. This is what he said. Christianity can't be true because the written accounts of the resurrection were based on the testimony of women. This is very offensive. And we all know that women are hysterical. Like, actually. Like, people were like, yeah, Celsus, I agree with that. Therefore, Jesus must not have resurrected. Does this make sense? Why would you make a fictional story about women who, quote, unquote, are hysterical if it was false? The only reason why Mark would actually write that Jesus was first eyewitnessed by a woman was because, one, Jesus loved those women and wanted them to have the most powerful message of the gospel ever, but, two, because it actually happened. So, in other words, we have eyewitness testimony. Last one, and then we're going to finish this sucker up because it's been a while. Okay. The third thing is the life of the disciples. Okay, so you might be thinking to me, okay, Tony, I get it. Tomb was empty. Wow, empty tomb, but maybe they stole it. Okay, eyewitness testimonies, yeah, sure, like, I'm sure they could, like, potentially hallucinate, even though that's not at all how hallucinations work. You can't hallucinate in different places at different times. That's crazy. But you might be thinking to yourself, well, wasn't first century people, like, super open to the resurrection? You know what I mean? Like, like couldn't the disciples have been like, oh, yeah, Jesus rose from the dead? Oh, good, Frank did too, so I kind of get it. Like, couldn't that have happened? Here's my argument that I want to show you. This is an argument called chronological snobbery, which I know, greatest name ever. And the principle of the idea is that people in our modern day think that people who lived before us were stinking stupid, okay? Stupid. They're like, oh my gosh, they crazy. Wrong, okay? Here's what I want to show you. That the first century disciples had far more reason to not believe in Jesus' resurrection than we do today. The Greeks believed in a spiritual resurrection. In other words, they believed that their bodies were cursed. So the idea of Jesus resurrecting in bodily form, they were like, bump that. That sucks. Didn't believe it. The Jews believed that there would one day be a general uh, resurrection where a bunch of people would kind of get up if they're really righteous and really Jewish. But the idea that the Son of God would come into the middle of human history in a human form and raise again, that would have actually broken their entire religious system. In other words, Jesus' disciples had no reason to believe that Jesus would rise from the death unless he actually did. And not only did they believe it hypothetically, they would believe it to their grave. See, one of the craziest realities of the early church is that these disciples wouldn't just believe that Jesus had rose hypothetically, but would leave it, believe it so deep in their core that they would actually be martyred for that belief. They would come to the point where they would actually be in front of a cross or a burning, book, burning something that they're going to get torched on or spears, and they would be said to them, hey, just say that Jesus didn't rise from the dead and he wasn't God. And they would say to them, I would rather die because my Lord has resurrected himself and he will resurrect me. They believed to the point where the resurrection wasn't hypothetical, but it impacted everything that they did, and they would go from being cowards to martyrs. The third reason why we believe the resurrection is historical is the lives of the disciples. Okay, so what does an empty tomb, the eyewitness testimony, and the lives of the disciples teach us? It teaches us that the resurrection of Jesus is historically verifiable and reliable. That is no better, there's no better side philosophy, okay? I've heard, I've read all of them, and they're stinking bad. They're just bad histor- history. There's no better alternative to the reality that Jesus Christ actually rose and began the greatest human movement of all time. Fun fact, this is my last fun fact, and then we'll close this sucker up. 
around the time of Jesus' life, there were around 30 to 40 other messianic figures that said, hey, I'm God. But the thing is, every single one of their movements died with them. Does that make sense? They went up. They, honestly, a lot of them got executed. They would die, and then no one would follow them. And yet one prevailed. Where Jesus Christ would die, he would resurrect again, and then his little group of, like, mangly disciples would within 300 years completely take over the Roman Empire, and 2,000 years later, there'd be 2 billion people that would say that they believe in a dead carpenter who, who supernaturally rose from the dead. One messianic leader that actually came through. It must be because he actually resurrected. So in review, the tomb destroys or defines everything. Okay, if the tomb is empty, then Saturday is every day. We have no hope we should close the sucker down and not smile ever again, honestly. But if the tomb is empty, then it defines everything. Everything Jesus said and did is ultimately true, and he is worthy of all of your worship. He is the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He is exactly who he says he was, and he came to redeem all of human history. And the reason why we're here tonight is not for fun music, for medium speaking. It's for Jesus Christ because he came through and he actually rose from the dead. This is good news. And the last thing is the resurrection is real. It is not fictional. It is historical. Okay, as I call the worship band back up, here's what I want you guys to see. The resurrected call is this. Praise King Jesus, bow your knee to him, and die to your old life on Good Friday to rise again with him on Resurrection Sunday. Die to your old life of finding your life in the party scene and resurrect with Jesus. Die to your old life of finding your worth in what men say about you and resurrect with Jesus. Die to the old life of finding your, or your accolades and accomplishments and all those things defining you and resurrect with Jesus. Once you were a slave to those things, but now because of the resurrection, you are no longer a slave but an heir. Amen? You have been given the identity of the king and brought into the kingdom of God, heaven on earth right now. That is your identity. Once you were a slave, but now you are an heir. It's all coming. Here's my good news for you. You can live a radical life because you don't need this life to be everything that you've ever wanted because you have a life coming that's better than you could ever imagine. That is the good news of the gospel. So resurrect with King Jesus, die to your old life, and come alive in him. In him. I want to end with a word of grace from Mark chapter 16, verse 7, and that word is Peter. Verse 7 says this, but go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. So here's my question for you. Why would Jesus single out Peter, right? Wasn't he one of the 11 disciples? Like, wasn't he one of the crew? And here's why. When the disciples heard that Jesus wanted to meet them after the resurrection, Peter would have said, you guys go. Peter would have said, I've messed up too much. I've denied him three times. I've betrayed him too much. He would want nothing to do with someone who was as broken as me. And yet even in the resurrection, the first two words Jesus gives as a message to Mary are laced with grace. Peter would go out to swim out to the resurrected Jesus with him, snack on salmon with him on the beach. Great time. His body and his life would be completely restored. Peter would be made from a denier to a proclaimer to be the lead pastor of the Jerusalem church. He would experience the grace upon grace of Jesus Christ. From a coward to a martyr, dying on an upside-down cross for his resurrected Lord. And here's my good news for some of you tonight. In the middle of this beautiful resurrection account, there is grace all over this story. And there's some of you here tonight who feel a lot like Peter. You're thinking to yourself, man, Tone, I, I get that. The resurrection is beautiful. The resurrection is true. The resurrection can change my life. But that's for the disciples over there. And here's what Jesus is saying to you tonight. No, it's for you. And he's saying your name. 
And just like he called Peter's life, name, and his betrayal, and his sin, and his brokenness, and Jesus brought him into new life, that's what he wants to do with you. The resurrected king is here calling your name. Even in the greatest event in human history, that would be the hinge point of all of our faith, all of everything, the story of everything. In that hinge point, his grace still pours out. Salterman, do you understand that? He is risen. He is not here. Jesus Christ is here, and he's calling your name. Let me pray as we enter into worship tonight. Father, what good news. What good news that the tomb is empty. And because we know that the tomb is empty, Jesus, we can trust that everything you said is true. Everything you came to do is real. That you actually began redemptive history 2,000 years ago. You snatched death out from the grasp of Satan and you put it in your own hands and you wrapped it around your fist and you defeated death, which means none of us have to die if we believe in you. Death is not the end of our stories, it is the beginning. And so Father, we pray that tonight you would resurrect dead souls. That people are walking in tonight much like Peter. I betrayed you, Jesus. I'm not good enough for you, Jesus. I'm too broken to be loved by you, Jesus. Father, would you call their name? Would you show them that the risen king is so gracious and so kind that even in the middle of our mess, that he comes and scoops us up? Father, I'm thankful that the tomb is empty, that the resurrection is real. And I pray specifically for any of us in this room who are experiencing intellectual doubts that you would give them the faith to see that, Father, we have enough evidence to trust that the resurrection is not an imaginary account, but it is a historical one. And because of that, Jesus, you have come to reset human history. And tonight, you can reset someone's life. We pray all these things in your name.